I think the important thing with these scrolls is that we now have copies of the biblical books that are about a thousand years earlier than what we had before. You are listening to Keeping It Israel, brought to you by First Century Foundations. This podcast explores how your Christian faith is connected to Israel and why standing with Israel matters. Now here's your host, Executive Director of First Century Foundations, Jeff Feuders. Well, welcome to our podcast today. My name is Jeff and I'm your host. And today we're going to talk about a topic, what have the Dead Sea Scrolls taught us after 75 years of study? And our guest today is Professor Eileen Schuler. She is a professor of religious studies at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. And for the last 25 years, she has been a leading translator, editor, and publisher of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Eileen formerly served as a president of the Canadian Society of Biblical Studies. She is associate editor of the Encyclopedia of the Dead Sea Scrolls and author of the book, The Dead Sea Scrolls, What Have We Learned? Uh, Professor Schuler, welcome to the podcast today. I'm very pleased to be here. Well, thank you for your time. And so to begin, let's just start with uh, who is Professor Schuler? Tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what are some of the, the stepping stones that led you to become a leading Dead Sea Scrolls scholar? Well, I'm, I'm a Canadian. I grew up in Edmonton and uh, I did my studies. I began with classics. Latin and Greek at University of Alberta, and then I moved on to study at University of Toronto. And I became interested in studying the Bible in Hebrew. And my interest went to the period of the post-exilic, after the people came back from Babylon, and the period between that right. time and the coming of Jesus, of which we really have more, less information then we have about some of the earlier periods. So when it came time to do my doctorate, mm -hmm. that was the period that I really wanted to concentrate on. The so-called, what's often called the intertestamental period between the Old and the New Testament. And I ended up doing my right. studies at Harvard University. And I was so fortunate there. It was really almost, it was a grace, it was a blessing. My two advisors, uh, John Strugnell and Frank Moore Cross had been working with the Dead Sea Scrolls for a long time since they were first found in 1947. But after, this was around 1980, mm. so I've actually been working like 42 years on these. And they were just, they still had not published many of the scrolls. And they were just beginning to take a new generation of scholars on. And so myself and another young woman, Carol Newsom, we became the first people then that they gave certain scrolls to, to work on, to edit, to publish. And that's how I got involved. And I've been working on them ever since. Wow. Well, we are certainly in great company and honored to have you here on the podcast. And I want to find out, just for those in our audience who are listening and maybe are less familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls, just briefly explain where, when, and how were they discovered? 
Yes, you know, I think everybody's heard something about the Dead Sea Scrolls, but often to say what they really are is is very difficult. Well, I would say mm -hmm. they're a collection of ancient manuscripts. There's about 900 altogether that were found in the caves around the Dead Sea, the northwest part of the Dead Sea, at the site of Qumran, so we often call them the Qumran scrolls, and they were found right. in 19, between about 1947 and 1952. So actually, we're celebrating this year the 75th anniversary of the finding of the scrolls. And this was right. a completely unexpected finding of these manuscripts. We never expected to find ancient manuscripts that had been preserved. But they were preserved because they had been hidden in the caves. And we think they were probably hidden in the caves around 66, 68 of the Common Era, which was, if, if you know your history at that time, this was the time of the Great Jewish Revolt. And when the Romans were attacking Jerusalem and then eventually destroyed right. the temple in the year 70, so we think that it was in this turmoil and chaos that these manuscripts were hidden in the caves. Wow. And uh, the scrolls themselves, so they were hid uh, just before, you know, a couple of years before the destruction of the temple during the Jew Jewish revolt. When do we think that they were written and, and by whom? Yes. Well, they were certainly written probably in around the two centuries before this time. We have some very early scrolls that might be dated as early as 200 BCE. And then, you know, the last ones were certainly written before around 65 then. So that's about the framework hmm. that we're looking at. And they were certainly written by a distinctive Jewish group at this time. And that's why whether we talk about the Qumran community or sometimes they're identified with what Josephus, the great historian of the time, talked about as the Essenes. But they're all religious texts, right. copies of the biblical books, copies of the texts that these Jews knew and many of them that the, this particular group probably wrote themselves. Right, and when we say wrote, we're, we're, we're talking about copying, correct? Yes, so they were writing them on animal skins. So these were animal right. skins, from, usually from sheep and goats, that had been partially tanned, made into parchment, and then could be used for writing, and then were sewn together and then rolled up as scrolls. But I think I should be, you know, make clear, we talk about 900 different manuscripts, but really only mm -hmm. about seven or eight of them are more or less fully preserved scrolls. Most of what we have had been you know, destroyed by the moisture, by bats and mice. And 
So we have literally tens mm -hmm. of thousands of little scrolls, of little fragments. So when, if I talk about a fragment about that, that would be considered a big fragment. So many, we mm -hmm. have just very small fragments. So, you know, part of the work when we say about working with these scrolls and publishing them is just trying, well, first of all, when they were found, the people, they literally spread out these thousands of fragments on glass plates within the uh, Palestine Archaeological Museum. And they had to try to, you know, match together which ones belong together. So that was a mammoth work, especially in the early years. Wow. Wow. Well, these are great facts for people who are listening in. And as I understand it, the process of, of scribing these scrolls, these Jewish religious uh, uh, scholars would, would be very, very meticulous in doing this. And so uh, it's, a, it's an amazing thing to have found them. How significant was this find? Well, it really was, from the very beginning, considered one of the most significant finds. I mean, uh, Eliezer mm. Zukenik, who was a great archaeologist professor at Hebrew University, and he bought some of the first scrolls. And he said immediately that this is one of the greatest finds ever made. Or W.F. Yeah. Albright, who is a, you know, a great scholar, they sent the first pictures of the scrolls to him in March 1948. And he sent this wonderful letter back where he said, this is the greatest manuscript discovery of modern times. And I think people would agree with that, you know, but because mm -hmm. of what's been found and because it was so entirely unexpected, we just did not think, no other manuscripts from this early period had been preserved. And, you know, the feeling was that we would never find anything this early. And, you know, so that's mm -hmm. partly why it was such a big uh, discovery. Yeah. Amazing. Now, which books of the Hebrew Bible were discovered in the caves? Well, in the caves, there were copies of all of the books of the Hebrew Bible with the exception of the book of Esther. Now, I, th I have to clarify that because when I say copies, they really range from, like we have one virtually complete scroll of the entire book of Isaiah, the whole 66 chapters. So that's a huge scroll, some seven meters long. But then for some wow. of the other books, we might have very small fragments. I mean, the book of Chronicles, and you know how long the book of First and Second Chronicles is. We have a couple of little fragments, yes. but we know it was there. Amazing. Now, uh, so the Isaiah scroll was found intact. We have the entire book. Is that the only one in its entirety? Yes, it really is. That's by far the yes. most complete scroll that we have. Most of the mm -hmm. other ones are fragments. Of course, for a biblical book, even if you have a very small fragment, sometimes not even any complete words, we can still match it up and know exactly where it's coming from. Right. Yes. Uh, 
Exactly. Now, you've been studying these scrolls now for a very long time, as you mentioned earlier. What are some of the things that we have learned about how the Bible was written? Well, I, a number of different things. I mean, I think the important thing with these scrolls is that we now have copies of the biblical books that are about a thousand years earlier than what we had before. Because prior mm -hmm. to 1947, the earliest virtually complete manuscripts that we had of the Hebrew Bible were from the 10th and 11th century. You know, the, the one that our translations are really based on is usually the Leningrad Codex from the year 1009. So mm. now we have, for instance, in the book of Isaiah, we have this Isaiah scroll that was written 125 BC. So that's a thousand years earlier. So we can see how carefully yeah. this book was copied throughout all these thousand years. And certainly it was copied very carefully. I mean, we it's basically the same manuscript. But on the other mm -hmm. hand, there are also hundreds of different small variations. Now, some of them are simply in orthography, in the spelling of words, because Hebrew can be quite fluid in the spelling. But then there mm -hmm. are certain changes, certain words that are different, and so scholars have to look and see, well, you know, what might have happened here? Is there, how did this change come about? And what might be the original text as far as we can try to understand it? And that's the work of the whole field of textual critics. And that's a whole field of study in itself that has been completely mm. revised now that we have all this new information. Now, when we think about, uh, you know, reading the Bible today, we think about a, you know, a bound book. Um, and I think sometimes we we think that way when we, you know, you know, picture the stories in the Bible. But what would the Bible that Jesus was familiar with have looked like? Well, again, it would have been, as far as we can know at this stage, it would have been individual books or perhaps a few books written together on a scroll. I mean, when we talk right. about Jesus in the synagogue at Nazareth, as Luke's gospel tells us, you know, obviously there was a scroll of Isaiah there for him to read. But how many scrolls an individual synagogue would have had, we don't know. You know, probably the Torah we, there certainly would mm -hmm. have been there. And it's interesting because at in the caves, the books that are the most well-preserved, where we have the most copies, are three books. Deuteronomy, so from the Torah, the book of Deuteronomy in particular, the prophet Isaiah, and the book of Psalms. So it seems, hmm. at least for this community at Qumran, those were the books that they were really emphasizing and using. Those are the three books of the Hebrew Bible that are quoted the most frequently in the New Testament. 
So it does point ah. to the fact that these are the books that were very well known and were being read and studied within Judaism of the period. That is a very interesting connection, and uh, thank you for pointing that out. I think that's uh, very intriguing. Now, when we look at the scrolls that were discovered, have they provided us, you know, with any further clarity regarding maybe some biblical texts that were difficult to understand or translate prior? Did they did they help at all in in any of that? Oh yes, they certainly do, and. You know, okay. certainly, because there are places in the Hebrew Bible that are very difficult to understand. And we often have a long discussion among the rabbis and among the church fathers, you know, over the centuries about what is the correct way to read this and how to translate it and why it doesn't seem to make sense. And there certainly hmm. are places then where the scrolls shed light on this. And so, you know, beginning already in the early 1950s, when the Revised Standard Version was translated, scholars already began looking to the scrolls. And you'll see little notes in most biblical translations that will sometimes indicate where a reading is being taken from the scrolls. Okay. Very interesting. Um, there's a, a common belief that Aramaic was the main language spoken by Jesus and the Jewish people of the first century. What, what have the scrolls taught us about, about the Hebrew language and its, its place in Jewish culture? Well, certainly it's showed us that, again, this particular group who were very learned you know, because they were writing and they were studying and that they did use Hebrew, not only, you know, for the biblical text, but for their own texts that they wrote. Because we have hmm. this large collection of texts that we had never known before that were, were written by this own, their own, this own particular group. And they used their own vocabulary they wrote about their way of life, and they wrote this all in Hebrew. So Hebrew was still, in that sense, a literary language. But I should say that there is a group of what we call the Aramaic Dead Sea Scrolls. So again, there were scrolls that were part of their library and that were being preserved and copied that were actually being written in Aramaic. And those are very important because other than the book of Daniel, chapters two to seven, we have very little Aramaic from this period. And now this has really okay. helped us to understand the Aramaic language also because we have many more texts. Amazing. Now, so perhaps I'm showing my uh, my ignorance here, but I did not know that. I did not realize that there was one of the scrolls, uh, at least one that was in Aramaic. Very, very interesting. Oh, yes. There's about 30 in Aramaic. 30 in Aramaic. Wow. Okay. Well, see, this is, I told you, I'm going to learn today. You're the expert and I'm here learning. It's wonderful. <laughs> 
what do those scrolls in Aramaic help us to understand about the language that was being commonly used during the first century in, in the time of Jesus? Do they help us with, with understanding that? Yes, they do. But again, remember, these are written texts. So this is probably a written form of the Aramaic, but it would be very close right. to the Aramaic that was being spoken at the time. Yes. And it, it fills in an important gap because we really had yeah. very little, as I said, other than the book of Daniel, until you began to have Aramaic texts in the Targums. But those are okay. third, fourth century texts. So this is an important to understand the development of the Aramaic language. Very good. Now, I know that uh, much of the uh, community there at Qumran, some of the ruins have been found. We've, we've been there and, and visited. Uh, what are some of the outstanding things that we've learned about how that community prayed and worshiped and carried on their sort of daily way of life? Oh, so many things we could say there. And I think it's important to say that one of the things that's becoming more clear, especially in the last 25 years of research, is that probably only a very small portion of this group ever lived at Qumran. I mean, this we don't quite know what Qumran was. It was some sort of a center maybe for people who came together at that site to celebrate some of the great festivals or the rituals, but only a small group of people would have ever lived there permanently. Hmm. Most of this community probably lived scattered throughout Judea, probably some in Jerusalem, but we don't really know. So I think okay. that's an important thing to think about. So we call it the Qumran community, but it's the community whose scrolls were found at Qumran, not that they all lived there. I but see. to go back to your earlier question, I mean, certainly we, we do know, we have learned a lot about how they worshiped and prayed and the texts that they wrote and used. Because, as I said, they certainly used the biblical Psalms. We had as lots of copies of the Book of Psalms. But they also wrote their own Psalms. And, in fact, those are the texts that I work on particularly, a collection of about 40 Thanksgiving Psalms that are modeled on the biblical Thanksgiving Psalms, but are new compositions in which they give thanks to God especially for having chosen them. I mean, they see themselves very much as people who have been chosen to, by God, whom God has revealed his mysteries. And so they give thanks and they praise God. And they see themselves actually as praising God together with the angels. That's very much part of their theology also. So hmm. we have some beautiful poetry and psalms like that. But we also have the first collections that we have, again, in written form 
of some of what would be daily prayers. So, as you know, like today, the Jews have a prayer book, the Sidur, that they have very set prayers for three times during the day. Right. But those, again, those prayers, our earliest copies are 8th or ninth century. But now we're sealing daily prayers that were being used in the first century. And so we have a collection of prayers for each day of the month, for morning and evening, when the sun goes out to illumine the earth and then when the sun returns in the evening. Or we have a collection of prayers with little headings for each day of the week, the prayer for the fourth day, for instance. Mm. And that's a wonderful, quite a well-preserved collection of prayers for each day of the week. And it sort of leads you through the history of the people from creation to exodus to exile and you have prayers of petition for knowledge, for forgiveness. And they all lead up, interesting, to the prayer for Shabbat, for the Sabbath. Right. And that's a prayer of praise. So again, and that's part of Jewish tradition to until today, that on, yes. the, on Sabbath, your only prayer is a prayer of praise. And we can see that that goes back already to the first century. Wow, that is amazing to, to understand. And I think, you know, it also helps to sort of under undergird what we know today in, in terms of, of giving it the foundation that it's been in place for so many hundreds of years. Now, did this, did this community have any connection with the temple or did they just carry on what they did, uh, you know, there in that, in that area? That's a very difficult question, and there are different opinions about that. Okay. But certainly it seems they were quite um, antagonistic to what was happening in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. They thought the sacrifices, the priests were doing it the wrong way, and they knew the correct way, but they weren't in charge. So they <laughs> saw themselves in some way that their prayer. And they used the language of sac their prayer was an offering of the lips. It had a sweet odor. So they're using sacrificial language and saying their prayer is like a sacrifice. And since mm. they they I, I they probably didn't go to the temple and participate in the sacrifice, but that their prayer was the equivalent. And they were a human temple that could offer praise and sacrifice to God until the end times, because they saw that at the end of days, which they thought was coming very close, they would be victorious and then they would be in charge of the temple and would do it mm. correctly. So it wasn't that they were anti-sacrifice or anti-temple. But in this interim period, their prayer was the equivalent of temple sacrifices. Wow, very beautiful, really, if you think about that. And uh, 
you know, I think I think today that certainly our prayers as Christians, you know, we believe that that uh, this takes place uh, in honor of the one sacrifice that that Jesus made and so on. But uh, I find that very intriguing. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the community uh, and how it was made up. There's a if I'm not uh, mistaken, there's an understanding that those of that community didn't marry, but were celebra- celibate. Uh, is that confirmed by what was discovered at Qumran? And are there any texts that mention women? Oh, yes. And I think here again is where our thinking has changed a little bit. Because when these were first found, the very first scrolls that talked about their life, uh, that they lived together, they shared property, they had a, a long stage of initiation. And that, re- that reminded people of what Josephus had said. There was this group of Essenes, and that's how they lived. So these people hmm. were often identified with the Essenes. But these early texts, they didn't, the f- first text from Cave One, they didn't say anything about whether they married or not. The okay. Essenes didn't marry. So people began to assume, well, these were look, the Essenes, they didn't marry. But it was never quite that simple because from the very beginning, we had some texts that talked about marriage. And then in the 1980s and 1890s, as more and more texts got translated, it, there were many more texts that simply assumed that these people were married, they had families, there were all sorts of regulations about how marriage was to be conducted, sexual relations within marriage, how the father chose a husband for his daughter and that. So it seems much more that again, probably the the larger part of this community were married and had families. Hmm. There might have been a smaller group that were celibate, but certainly, and certainly these texts tell us a lot about them, understanding of marriage and women at this time in Judaism. Very good. That clears that up. And uh, talk a little bit more. What would what would the role of women have been at that time? Were they you know, just the homemakers, uh, the leaders of the family. What do we know about that? It's very, you know, because again, we're very limited in the type of information that we Mm -hmm. have. Um, But it does seem that at least in some ways, women had quite a high place in this community. there and in certain there's I mean because we're basically dealing with many legal texts about what people could and couldn't do, but in some of these texts, women could give a certain type of testimony about certain things, especially with regard to sexual relations within marriage. They talk about knowledgeable and skilled women who gave opinions on certain very, you know, important issues that had to do with women and fertility and things like that. Hmm. So there were there were certain roles for women within the community. Whether they were full members, I mean, what 
full members means? Those are very difficult and comp and much discussed questions. Okay. Now, are there any similarities or, or do we can, can we identify any similarities between early Christianity and this community at Qumran? Well, certainly there are, yes, similarities. Um, similarities in the fact that, you know, we have then a better sense of sort of the spectrum and the range of theological thinking uh, within first century Judaism, within which, from which Christianity is situated and arising. So, you know, the sense, I, I mentioned this very strong sense that you had with this group of the end of times coming soon. Mm -hmm. Belief that there would be a Messiah or sometimes this community seemed to think, expect to have two Messiahs. Someone from the line of David and a priestly Messiah. But this mm -hmm. sense of a great expectation the sense of preparing for the end times by repentance. Repentance often took the form of ritual washings. Hmm. So, you know, you can see some of the similarities with Christianity. Some of the language that this sect used or this group used about seeing things often in a very black and white, dualistic way, the way that John's gospel does, light and darkness, truth and lie. That was very hmm. much part of, the, of their language. And when we often studied St. John's gospel, because it's so different than the other gospels, people tended to think, well, that language must be coming from the Greeks, coming from much oh. later. But now we can see that was part of at least some Jewish thinking within this period. The same way when Paul, like he uses this language of the mystery, the mystery that is revealed in Jesus Christ, the mystery of God's will toward you. Well, yes. that language, again, people said, well, is he drawing this from the Greek mystery religions? No. This was very much part of the language at this time. And we have many texts from the Qumran material that talk about Raznihye, the mystery that is. Okay. So we can see, you know, again, Christianity much more within its context. Yeah, and, and I guess identify that, that possibly they were, early Christians were influenced by this type of thinking from, uh, from the community at Qumran. I think that that, uh, as, as you're talking, uh, you know, it all seems very, very uh, likely that, uh, that that would be the case. Now, has, has anything led you to believe that John the Baptist may have been connected to this community? That's something that we hear, uh, you know, about. What, what do you say about that? That's very hard. To, you know, it's very hard to establish. Certainly, again, you know, the language of preparing for the, you know, the end times, which is, you know, going to be coming near. And John certainly had that expectation. 
the mm-hmm. language of using repentance, changing in preparation, the language of washing, you know. So all of these things, you know, could have been whether whether he was actually a member at any time at Qumran, that we don't know. Mm-hmm. But th- this was part of the milieu at that time. Right. That's very clear. So no direct link to him as a as a named person, but certainly the I, I don't think we can establish no. No. No, but certainly the the um, activities that he was involved in and and let's say even the area where uh, he carried out his ministry there along the the Jordan um not that far away from Qumran mm-hmm. and uh so there could be some connections, yes. I guess, is, is what people say. Um, yes. Okay, well, this has been very, very interesting, Professor Schuler. I really appreciate you taking some time with us today. Now, the Dead Sea Scrolls themselves, what does the future look like? Have we learned everything that we can learn from these? Or, uh, you know, what's what's on the horizon? Oh, no, definitely. We've still got a long ways to go. I mean, since 2009, the scrolls have all been published. So, you know, there are both scholarly editions and popular translations now of Mm -hmm. all of the scrolls. So that was an important turning point. Right now, we're doing a lot of work on writing new commentaries on the scrolls. Because most of the commentaries have been work done in the 1960s and there's just so much new information so that's one of the, that's what i'm working on right now is a commentary on the thanksgiving songs so that's you know a big project for the next four or five years the other okay. thing that i will mention where a lot of new work is being done on the scrolls is using more modern digital digital computer techniques to try to look at the scrolls, better photography, you know, trying Mm -hmm. to make joins of the scrolls using computer technologies, studying the handwritings, trying to see which scrolls might have been written by the same scribe. So there's a whole digital component to the study of the scrolls that's developing now. And that will give us some new information. And that is very intriguing. And I know a lot of people listening will find that extremely interesting. Uh, you wrote a book, The Dead Sea Scrolls, What Have We Learned? And uh, tell us, why did you write this book? Well, it actually grew out of a series of lectures that I gave at the University of Victoria in uh, 2002. And it was simply an, uh, an attempt for people who aren't specialists in the field to try to help see, well, what is important and what have we learned? Mm-hmm. It could probably be updated now. I, I finished it in 2005. So, uh, but it still, I think, gives a fairly good sense of what are some of the main things that we have learned from the scrolls. Very good. Well, we will look forward to uh, this next book on the Thanksgiving Psalms. That sounds very interesting. And uh, let our audience know, how can they find a copy of your other book, The Dead Sea Scrolls? What have we learned? Is there a place they can go to uh, to order that? 
Probably the bet uh, the best place now is to go to Amazon. Okay. It's published by Westminster John Knox, but they're not keeping it uh, going. So I think the best place that I know is to go to Amazon and see. Uh, there's a there was an earlier version of it published by SCM in England, and sometimes that's also available from Amazon. Okay, wonderful. Well, we'll let our audience know. And uh, again, I just want to say what an honor it's been to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for taking this time with us. And uh, we pray God's blessing and that you'll have a wonderful day. And thank you for the invitation. I've enjoyed sharing what obviously is very important for me. Shalom, and thank you for listening to Keeping It Israel. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it and consider supporting us to keep the conversation going. And just so you know, you can watch this podcast on our First Century Foundation's YouTube channel, where you will find all of our Keeping It Israel interviews and much more from First Century Foundations. So don't forget to subscribe. First Century Foundations exists to turn hearts around the world toward the land, people, and God of Israel. We support over 70 ministries in Israel who are doing an incredible work on behalf of the Kingdom of God in so many different ways. We also take tours to Israel and we would love to have you join us. Please visit firstcenturyfoundations.com to learn more about the work we do and how you can stay connected. Until next time, from all of us at First Century Foundations, God bless you and God bless Israel.